this book holds a special place in my heart. I was read this book as an infant, hence the name uh, Peter that I possess. My dad read the books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to me when I was in my mom's womb, and also when I was an infant. And um, so it is a total honor to be able to open the Word of God and teach um, a portion of Scripture from 1 Peter. So, if you are there, we are going to be starting in verse 8, reading from verse 8 to verse 12. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, sorry about Jesus here, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray again. Lord, we do come before you now, Jesus, as um, a group, Lord, of individuals, Lord, who need to hear from you, Lord, who need to know Jesus, what you have to say to us. Lord, we recognize that you are so much bigger, so much more amazing than we will ever be able to understand. And we'll never be able to fully understand until we are one with you in eternity. But until then, you have given us your word. You have given us the holy scriptures to look at and to learn from. And I ask, Jesus, that you would meet us here this evening that you would fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that you would bless us with your presence like I know you already have. Thank you that we get to worship you in spirit. I pray that we would worship you in truth, and I pray that you would teach us, Lord, that I would be a channel. If you want to do something completely different than what is on my computer, Lord, we ask that you would do so. We want to hear from you, Lord, and it is in your precious and holy name that we ask and pray these things, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, Peter is one of my absolute all-time favorite Bible characters. He really is. I absolutely love him. When we read the scriptures, when we read God's word, is it cool if I stand in the middle of the staircase? Or do you think anyone's going to come up? I just, anyways, I'm feeling too close to this pole. Um, when we search the scriptures, when we read the Bible, when we learn about Peter, there's something very interesting we see. We see God's grace, God's hand of grace on his life. When we are introduced to Peter, he's a fisherman. He's slowly transformed. He's called out by Jesus to be one of his disciples. And we see him follow Jesus during Jesus' public ministry. He was an amazing, zealous, and passionate man of God during Jesus' public ministry. One of the most, I mean, I know a lot of you know this, one of the most famous passages where we see this fire and zealous and passion he has for Jesus and for the kingdom of God is in the Garden of Gethsemane when the, um, the, the, the Jewish um, religious leaders are leading these Jewish soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane and you have Peter you know, leading up to that event. He's telling Jesus, man, I, I would die for you. I'm going to the death. 
and these soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and we see Peter pull out a sword, and what? We all know he what? He cuts off the ear of a soldier. Well, I can guarantee you right now he wasn't aiming for his ear. Who cuts off an ear? He was aiming to cut off his head, okay? He, was wanting, to, he wanted to kill the guy. So we can see throughout the scriptures that, that Peter was a very passionate, strong, zealous man for Jesus, but at times he had a very hard time backing that up. And then we see that displayed most effectively in the scriptures, a few chapters over in the Gospels, where Peter denies Jesus three times. Three times he denies the same person he said, I would go to death for. But because of God's grace, this man went from being a man who denied his Lord openly to being a man who on the day of Pentecost stood up and gave the first gospel message ever preached and had thousands of people respond to Christ's salvation. Peter is a living example of the power of Christ. And he is a living example of what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells you and begins to change your life. A guy that goes from denying his Lord and Savior, his rabbi, his teacher, to 50 days later, standing up and proclaiming with that same passion that we talked about earlier, the gospel message and having thousands of people respond to him. Now, we're in 1 Peter. I think it's important to examine the context of who, what, and why of Peter's letter here in 1 Peter. We need to learn who, what, and why. When we take time to learn and study good biblical hermeneutics, which is just this really fancy name for context, when we're studying the context of things, it gives us a much better understanding of how to apply the passage we're reading or studying to our own lives. Now, that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to tell you something, a little something about this, Peter. I absolutely love movies. It is literally, I love movies. It's my favorite pastime. I love watching movies with Sierra. I love it. It's relaxing. It's so fun. It's the best. I get free hugs and snuggles. And a lot of the times, Justin's on the couch with us, and we're all eating ice cream, and it's rad. So, but who here loves, who here loves a good movie? Like, honestly, show of hands. Who here loves a good movie? Who here likes comedy movies? Who here likes a stinking, crazy horror flick? Like, it is in your face, like you're having bad dreams for a couple weeks. Okay, who likes a good drama? Like, you're crying. Dude, I love it. That's me. I cry my eyes out. I'll just give you an example. We, uh, Jim and Shanti Westby took us to go see, like, um, you know that movie War Room? I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm not someone who has ever dug Christian movies. I think they're so cheesy and lame. But I was an absolute mess. There were like five or six times where I was like, like crying. The conviction came. I'm like eating these dark chocolate covered cherries and the tears are like spilling down. I'm like half a woman during that movie. And so it's like, I love a good movie. I love a good drama. I do love a good horror. I do. I do love a good comedy. I like laughing. I like good, clean humor though. I don't like that raunchy stuff. Now, we got to understand something. What was happening in Peter's day and age was a lot like a movie. The context surrounding this passage of scripture was a lot like movie, like a movie. And I'm going to give you the context. We're looking at about 64, the year 64 AD here, when 1 Peter is writing this. Now, Peter is writing to a group of Christians in the early church, the first century church, who are dispersed 
in the Northern European and Roman Empire region. That's where he's writing to. He's, he's writing to the Christians in Rome. You see, in 64 AD, Nero became or was um, a very brand new emperor in the Roman Empire. And Nero had decided to burn down Rome in the year 64 AD. The purpose being to erect new grand marble monuments and buildings to have his name engraved in the history books forever as one of the most influential Roman rulers. Nero decides, I want to be known in the next generation, the generation after that, I want to be known forever. I'm going to burn down Rome, and we are going to build up new marble monuments and buildings in my name so that people will remember me. Now, you got to imagine being a Roman citizen, even under your own empire, um, emperor. The populace of Rome was so infuriated that they were preparing to overthrow Nero. The people who lived in Rome lost all of their stuff, their homes, their possessions, a lot of them. And they were infuriated. They were beginning the beginnings of a revolt against Nero and the Roman um, throne. And in an attempt to cover his name and his reputation, Nero sought out a scapegoat to blame for the ash-infested Rome. So he chose the Christians. Nero burns down Rome. It's in ashes. People are mad. They're angry. They're going to overthrow him. In order to protect his reputation, he decides, I'm going to blame the Christians. It was at this point in history where a radical persecution of the early first century church began. This is where the context that I'm talking about turns to that of a horror movie. You had Christians who were dipped in boiling, boiling tar. You had Christians who were paraded around naked and burned outside of Nero's house parties. They would dip them in tar, they would hang them up on a pole, and they would light them. They were Nero's outdoor lighting to his parties. Intense stuff. They were drugged across the city by chariots. They were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. They were tied up. This is, I've never heard this one, but they were tied up in leather bags, two Christians in one leather bag, thrown in the water, so that when the water made the leather shrink, the Christians were slowly squeezed to death. In a hundred other delicate ways, Nero sought to impress upon them the folly of being Christians. Nero was looking for a scapegoat. He chooses the Christians. And here we have some of the most intense torture techniques we see in history of the early Christians being persecuted. The church was facing persecution. This letter, 1 Peter, was written to believers scattered within the Roman Empire, Christians that were suffering from the result of Nero's proclamation against Christians. It's clear to all of us, since we just talked about the context, that Peter is writing to believers who are hurting, dying, struggling in their faith, struggling in their relationship with God. That's who Peter's writing to. So here's the thing. The choice is really up to us. Is this going to stay a history lesson in our minds? Or are we going to apply what the early church was facing here in the first century to our own lives? There's a question we all have to ask ourselves, including me. 
Now, I get it. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're not suffering like the first century church was. None of us are suffering like the first century church was. None of us are. I, I would, if, if you are, I would really like to know the last time you were paraded naked around the city of Vista or at your high school or were dipped in boiling tar. We talked about it, right? I would really like to know that. Some of us aren't really suffering like that, but the reality is what these men, women, boys, and girls went through is no small thing. The world around them hated them and wanted to see them all dead and gone. They wanted to see this faith non-existent anymore. I'm sure they questioned why they believed in God in the first place, especially when enduring such pain. I think we all do when we endure pain. But I truly believe that the question we all need to be prepared to ask ourselves is this, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond when the heat is turned up in my life? How are we going to respond when the heat is turned up in our lives? If we do face trials, if we do face persecution, how are we going to respond? What are we going to do? If you're taking notes tonight, the title of the message is Faith and Fire. Faith and Fire. And if you would, look with me again at verses 8 through 9 here in 1 Peter. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now remember the context. They're facing persecution. The church is undergoing major persecution. This, my friends, this is where faith comes in. These verses so strongly relate to us as believers today. The world that we live in bombards, bombards the Christian community with so much filth and lies about the lack of logic and cognitive functioning or thinking that the Christian church supposedly has a lack in, that I believe it polarizes us as believers. So in other worlds, in other words, the, the world tells us that we don't think correctly, which causes us to then not think correctly. We get hounded with all of these lies. We get hounded with all of these facts about evolution and skepticism. We're told that we don't think logically. We're told that we can't think correctly. And then what I think it does is it makes us as believers polarized. We freeze. We stop in our faith. We don't know how to react. We begin to question ourselves. You see, when it comes to worldly wisdom, what the world thinks about faith is that you don't put faith or believe something that you can't see, taste, touch, or smell. Why would you? We've been given senses. We've been given the ability to think and touch and smell and taste, right? So the grounds of trusting in an invisible God and staying faithful to Him makes no sense to the world. It doesn't make any sense. They think we're crazy. They think you're lame for believing in something you can't see, believing in something you've never talked to, right? But do you want to know what? It's not supposed to make sense. It's not. It's not supposed to make sense. John 14, 4 says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God's ways, perfect, holy, pure, amazing God. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. God is infinite. That means he's always existed. From the beginning of time, he's outside of time. 
He is more mentally capable than all of us combined together, than the whole world combined together, than every piece of information that has ever been written in human history combined. He is more mentally capable. And why? Why is he more capable? Why is he better? Why is his way, why are his ways better? Why are they higher? Because we are finite. Because we are not of his nature. We can't think the way he does. We've been given the brains we have. We have been made the way we are. We cannot comprehend or think or love to the capacity that God does because we are not of his nature. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, we see through a glass darkly. And I bring that up because it shows us that as humans, we, innately, we are mortals. We aren't capable of fully understanding the things of God. We aren't. But thank God that he hasn't left us in the dark. And he has given us the solution. What Peter is telling the persecuted Christians in the first century translates to us in the 21st century in major ways. Look at verse 8 again. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not, you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The first century Christians, the first century believers, they had never seen Jesus. They couldn't see him during the trials they were facing. But even though they couldn't, they believed. In other words, they had faith. They trusted Jesus. They hoped in Jesus. They looked to Jesus. That brings us to our only point tonight. And what I want you guys to walk away with, number one, the only one, number one, faith produces joy. Faith produces joy. And remember, when I'm saying all this, we're in the context of trials. We're in the context of persecution. We are in the context of people who are being hated for their faith. But even in the midst of that, number one, faith produces joy. The scriptures t say, scriptures tell us that we are justified by faith. We are justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. Paul writing to the Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of faith, we are justified. Because of faith, we have peace with God. This singular truth produces the joy that enables us to stand firm in trials. It's the faith that enables us. It's the joy that is a result of the faith that enables us to stand firm and stay confident in trials. Verse 9 says, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our faith in God, the only God, the true and living God, produces the salvation of our souls. The faith we have in God, the belief we have in God, justifies us and gives us the salvation of our souls. This means that we can hope in heaven. This means that death is not the final answer. That we can experience the joy of salvation amidst the fieriest of trials. 
We can have faith in fire. Peter is telling these Christians who are getting their butts kicked in persecution to believe. He's telling them to believe. He's telling them to trust because it's the salvation of our souls that truly matters. It's the salvation of our souls that matters. We were designed, we were made to be with God. We were made to be in heaven. The earth is a temporary dwelling. I know that's really hard for a lot of you to understand. That's hard at times for me to understand. That this earth is temporary. That this isn't what I was designed for. This isn't what I was made for. I was designed, my soul was designed, I was made to be in God's presence. I think in the midst of all of this, it's important for us to remember what Peter writes a few verses before verse 8 and verse 3 when he says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, guys, it's, it's salvation. It's Christ's work on the cross and our faith in God that gives us the ability to stand firm in trials. You can see what a living hope does. It activates us. It motivates us now. This is the great thing about Christianity. If you take away the hope of another world, of another life, you destroy the meaning of this life. If there is no hope of where I'm heading after this life, then the purpose of this life is stripped completely away. There is no point. There is no point. It's salvation and eternal life that gives us a reason to stay faithful in a trial. Faith produces joy, produces the joy of salvation, enabling me to have faith in, in and with the fire. Now maybe you're hearing all of this this evening and your blood boils. It doesn't sit well with you. You would agree with the world and say how foolish it is to put your faith and trust in something that you can't see. And something that maybe you've never had a physical um, interaction with. Well, I want us to look again at verses 10 through 12 real quick. And we're going to read, starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, this salvation that gives us the strength to stand firm in a trial. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Maybe you're right. Maybe the skeptics, maybe the doubters, maybe the people who think that this whole thing is stupid. Maybe they're right. Why should we believe? Why should we trust? It's really important for us to realize what these verses are saying. Verses 10 through 12. This peace, this peace and salvation that we experience. Okay. Sorry, my back toward it just it creeps me out. Okay. <clears throat> Just never know back here. I'm just, uh, I would know I live. 
back here in this stuff. Um, The peace, so it's, it's important for us to realize what these verses are saying. The peace and salvation that we experience because of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross is something that has been set in motion since the beginning of time. It's been something that has been planned since the beginning of time. God had a plan to save the world from sin before he ever created it. He knew that in order, how do I know that? Because he's outside of time. That's how I know that. Because he's infinite. Because he's internal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. That means he knows. He knows everything. He knows everything. And he's sovereign. That's a different discussion. God had a plan to save the world from sin before he ever created it. He knew that in order to have a loving, to have a genuine and loving relationship with mankind, he would have to create man with a choice. He would have to create man with a choice. There cannot be love without a choice. I love Sierra. I chose to marry her. I chose to ask her to be my bride. I chose to leave a football scholarship to work at a church because I loved her enough and saw how amazing she was that I thought I would be an absolute idiot to not do that. An absolute idiot. That was love. That is a choice. And so I've decided to make that choice every day. I've decided I want to make that choice every day. That is love. There is a choice in love. There has to be. There has to be. So God knew that in order to have a loving relationship with man, he would have to make man to have a choice. Well, unfortunately, the original man, and it sucks for all of us, but it's just the way it is, the original man chose wrong. Adam chose to sin. Eve chose to sin. We all know that that decision set sin in motion. It was perpetual, just Boom, like a wave, a shock wave. And now we're experiencing the effects. All of you women who will experience pain in childbirth, you can thank Eve. Every, all the guys who struggle with issues, guess what? You can blame Adam because it was, his, it was his choice. And I don't know why. And I wish I could go back to, I kind of wish I could go back to the garden and change it, but I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would because maybe I wouldn't be here. But anyways... He chose wrong. Sin came into the world. You all get it. You've heard it a billion times. Okay, sin's in the world. And um, the reality is God planned. God planned for there to be a solution. Yeah, he knew you'd have to make man with a choice. He knew man would choose wrong because he had to give. He had to give a choice. There's no love without a choice. But in the midst of all of that, God planned for there to be a solution. Thus sacrificing himself. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes the world is so caught up in, well, how am I responsible for a guy, for a guy, for a guy, for a guy, (laughs) however many years ago, who chose wrong? You can't tell me that, man. That's not my fault. That's not my fault. Screw God. That's not my fault. Well, guess what? God took it upon himself to fix man's issues. He took it upon himself to fix your issues. He took it upon himself to fix my issues. Billions of issues that I have. He took it upon himself. And that, that, that is why, that is why, that's one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why God is so incredible. 
He sacrificed himself on a tree. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, Son, God the Son, on a tree so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Look, what verses 10 through 12 is telling us is that the solution, this solution, this salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross, this is something that the prophets of old spent their whole lives looking and searching for. Do you get it? Before Jesus was ever born of a virgin, there were prophets for thousands of years who were seeking a solution. Seeking a solution. Endless, endless, endless blood animal sacrifices with no personal relationship with God. No personal relationship with God. No Holy Spirit to indwell them. The only person that could even meet with God in his presence was the high priest. One person, once a year. Those prophets broke themselves searching, praying, fasting, searching for the exact time, the exact place where that salvation would take place. On the cross of Calvary. And it's something that even angels, the angels of heaven, desire to look into and to know more about what we are talking about, what we are able to experience on a daily basis. What God has made available for us to experience is, this, is his beautiful plan of redemption for the world. He's made that available for us to experience on a personal and real level, his beautiful redemption plan for the world. It's an answer to suffering. It is the answer to suffering. It's the hope in trials. And look, I'm going to be honest and I know all of you know this, but the world tells you the complete opposite. The world tells you the complete opposite. They're stuck in their thinking. They doubt the existence of God because of the existence of trials and suffering. They say, how could a good God exist if we don't live in a good world? But let me, let me shed some light on something. Let me shed light on something that to me baffles me, that so many people have fallen under the fog of this kind of thinking. Their answer to such issues, such as cancer, death, destruction, evil, pain, an atheist, an evolutionary believing atheist's answer to this idea of pain and suffering in the world is just another part of natural selection. The child suffering of cancer, the mass genocide released on a race, the rape, the murder, that mother's, that's mother's nature, that's mother nature's way of weeding out the less desirable people. It's just another cog in the biological evolutionary machine. And the way that evolution views you is that you're just another cog in the evolutionary biological machine. The pain and suffering we endure, that's just another way of Mother Nature weeding out the less desirable traits so that the strong can survive against the weak, so that the strong can prey itself against the weak. That is the whole point of that thinking. That is the whole point of a God-rejecting thinking. There is no hope. There is no hope. There is no point. There is no point for morality. There is no point for anything. You can tell me all you want about saving the rainforest. You can tell me all you... You can say all you want about being the best person you can be. But if you do not believe in the existence of God, if you do not believe there is a higher being, if you do not believe there is a moral code, there is no point in me following whatever fluffy feelings you feel about organic coffee and saving the Amazon. There's no point. There is absolutely no point. 
without God. But with God, we can enjoy single-origin coffee, and we can try and save the Amazon to be good stewards of what God has given us. So, to me, it sounds like a better option. That wasn't in my notes. Anyways, Jesus offers another way. His answer, his answer to pain and suffering in the world is that suffering, death, and pain are, is a result of sin. So he put the responsibility on himself to save us from it by dying on the cross. That's his answer. And he offers that to every single person who would be willing to humble themselves and receive the gift of salvation and put their faith in him. And that baffles me. It baffles me that more people don't. Look, I get it. I really, I honestly, no suffering is easy. I've suffered. I've suffered. I have. I've been sick. I have. I've gone through issues in my life. No suffering is easy, and we all know that. No amount of persecution or trial is ever easy or will ever be easy. But for believers, there is something that we have to hold on to. There is a hope that we have to hold on to. There is a hope that is deep within our souls. Something that brings us back 2,000 plus years ago to the foot of the cross where God incarnate suffered a death he didn't deserve, removing all guilt, shame, sin, breaking bondage, cleansing stains, bringing hope, bringing life from death. There's a hope that believers have that brings us back to the foot of the cross where we look up and see God, the God-man, suffering for us, looking down at us and saying, I love you, I accept you, I don't care what you've done, I want to love you, and I want to have a relationship with you. And that, that, that is the reason why when you are suffering, when there is death in the family, when there is pain in your life, when someone gets cancer, when someone dies in a car accident, and it doesn't make any sense, no sense, the reality is that our souls, we are not bodies, we are souls, and we were not designed to live in an imperfect world. We were designed to be in unity with our Lord and Savior, with our God. That is what we were designed for. So it's up to us as believers to get that ingrained in our head and to start seeing every decision we make in life based off of and in light of that reality. That I'm not made, I'm not made, none of us are made to experience this. Our hope isn't, our hope isn't in a self-help book. Our hope isn't in the weekend. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And the faster you guys can understand that, the faster you guys can understand that, pray that through in your heart, the more strengthened and equipped you will be when the trial comes and when the persecution comes. There's a beautiful reversal that takes place because of Jesus. A beautiful reversal, a 180 degree turn. No suffering is final because he suffered. No pain is final because he endured pain. No shame is too ugly because he took our shame. He has replaced all death with life. That is the God we serve, and that is our answer in any trial. When I look to God and lift my eyes to him, to believe and trust in the goodness of God enables us to rejoice because we know where we're headed. Heaven. We know where we're headed. We know that he's already won. And guys, our God 
loves us. Our God loves us so much. He died for us. And he's with us. He indwells us. He indwells the people who call on his name, put faith in him. He believes, he, he believes and loves in you, and he, and he indwells you. And he will always stay true to you. He's perfect. His promises are perfect and will never fail. He always will ever, always, always, always stay true to you. So, my encouragement to all of you guys tonight, based off of this passage, based off of this book that you guys are diving into, Peter is jumping straight in to what is so important for every believer to understand. Is that our hope in trials, our hope in persecution, our hope, what, what gets us through things is, is faith. It's faith in God. It's the salvation of our souls. Because when I, when I dwell on, on the, what Christ has done for me and the ability for me to have salvation and the ability for me to have a relationship with him, the only thing that does is point me to him and point me to heaven. It gets my eyes off myself. It gets my eyes on him and the world around me and how I can be a blessing and shine as a light. So have faith in the fire and watch, watch God show up in amazing ways. Have faith in the fire and just watch God show up in amazing ways. Because what we experience on a daily basis, what we are able to experience in our hearts, in our lives every day, is something that people before Jesus came to the earth, lived and died, they longed for. Longed for. Slaved themselves over. We're able to experience his presence. We're able to experience the joy of his salvation, of our salvation, because we put our faith and hope in him. Lord, I thank you so much, Jesus, for who you are to us and your promises, Lord. And God, just how amazing it is that we can know you on a personal, personal level. And Jesus, you have blessed us for where we live. You have blessed us, Jesus, here in America, that we have not yet had to face the type of persecution or trials that the first century church is facing here in Peter's letter. And I thank you for your mercy, and I pray your mercy would continue to be upon us and our nation. And I ask Jesus that you would bring revival. I ask Jesus that you would equip and strengthen each and every one of my brothers and sisters here, students and leaders, including myself, to live as lights in this world, to have faith in you, to trust in you, to look to you, to share with others who you are and what you have done and what you're going to do. Help us, Lord, to find the strength that we need in you when we are in the midst of a trial or a difficult circumstance. May our eyes be fixed on you May our, may our hearts remember what you have done for us and what you have made available for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're perfect. We thank you that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you can use and you choose to use us, people who are imperfect and sinful, to glorify you 
Lord, I, I don't even deserve to be standing here sharing a message. But I thank you, Lord, for your voice. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with each and every one of my brothers and sisters here. And I ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in you, someone who cowers and who, who grows fearful of the fact that if they were to fall into a trial, they wouldn't have a faith. I pray that you touch them right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts and give them a sensitivity to you and to your leading, and that they would be open and honest with the leader. But God, more importantly, they'd be open and honest with you. Because Lord, you have done so much for us. You've given us such an amazing gift. We'll never understand it until we are with you. But I thank you, Lord, that we are able to stand confident and strong in you. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.